0: Thank you, Ruth, for leading us in that time of prayer together this morning. I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38, and that's on page 830 if you're following along in the Bibles uh, in the pews here. And um, we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, It's going to take us quite a while. We're going to make our way through the Gospel of Luke over the next uh, couple of months. And um, the reason for that is pretty simple. I haven't really gone all the way through the gospel of Luke before and I was listening to a podcast that says it's pretty good. So I figured we'd, we'd do that. So we're going to start right towards the beginning of Luke's Gospel. Luke actually opens by uh, talking a bit about John the Baptist, um, but we're going to kind of focus uh, specifically on Jesus in this series um, and on the actions of Jesus, what Luke is trying to reveal about Jesus, and, uh, and so forth. So we're going to begin, actually, with uh, the birth of Jesus foretold. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, and this is what Luke writes In the sixth month of Elizabeth, that's John the Baptist's mom, in the sixth month of her pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, "'Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you.' Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this was. But the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, tells the story of a group of inmates at the Shawshank State Penitentiary from the 1940s to the 1960s. In the film, one of their guards, Captain Hadley, is, to put it mildly, a gruff fellow. Uh, He's hard on the inmates, unkind to his fellow guards, and it always seems like he's finding something to be wrong or difficult or frustrating. For instance, at one point in the film, Captain Hadley learns that he's received a pretty big inheritance from one of his family members who recently passed away. And yet he even finds a problem with that. After receiving the news that he's going to uh, get this um, sort of influx of free money to him, all he can do is complain about how the government is going to tax him for it. You see, even though this inheritance should be good news to him, Captain Hadley is afraid of what it's going to cost him. I think sometimes the Christian gospel has the same effect on us as Christian believers. It's good news, right? The gospel is good news about salvation. It's good news about the forgiveness of our sins. It's good news about the restoration of our relationship with God. And yet sometimes it still makes us afraid. The gospel makes us afraid of what it might do to us, it makes us afraid of what it might demand from us and makes us afraid of what it might cost us. We actually get that word, the gospel, from a Greek word, eungalion. In the original Greek, that word literally means good news and when we hear it today, we probably think of the Christian definition of it, right? The gospel, the good news, is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of salvation. It's the good news of the Christian faith. That's how we use this word, the gospel, these days. But that word, eungalion, the gospel, actually predates the Christian faith. And so before the early Christians sort of assumed it and started using it for their purposes, it actually had another meaning, something else that it used to refer to before it became a Christian term. In fact, it was actually a military term that referred to a very specific kind of battlefield report. You see, throughout history, battles were usually fought off in the wilderness somewhere, okay? In the 21st century, we're familiar with the concept of urban warfare, and unfortunately, we've actually been seeing that recently playing out in Ukraine, right? Um, But for much of human history, battles weren't fought in cities that way. They were actually often fought off in a field somewhere, out in a neutral location, far away from the cities and kingdoms that were participating in them. And there were a whole number of reasons for that. Okay? But one of the biggest was that cities were considered extremely valuable in the ancient world. They still are today. And so when, when different countries would go to war with each other, one of the things that they wanted to do was preserve those cities. If you were an ancient king or queen and your kingdom was going to war, you always wanted to fight those battles some way, somewhere far away. You certainly didn't want your own city to be destroyed in the fighting, but you didn't want the other side's city or cities to be destroyed either. And that's because you were hoping that once you won, you would be able to take those cities over and use their value for yourself. And so because of that, ancient civilizations often fought their battles, their wars, their conflicts someplace else, someplace far away, someplace off in the wilderness or a field somewhere away from the cities. Those battles, by the way, were often also one-and-done affairs. This is, again, pretty different from how war today works. We're used to wars that can go on for a series of battles over the course of many years. But that's actually a fairly recent development, because for much of history, wars consisted of one, maybe two battles. The two sides would meet, fight, and then whoever won pretty much won the war. Um, I listen to a history podcast, because of course I do, uh, And the host has actually talked a bit about this. He's got a whole series of episodes on World War I um, where he talks about uh, the different developments in World War I and how it changed human conflict and human wars. And this was actually one of the developments. People were surprised once World War I started that it kept going on and on and on because up until that point, like I said, battles pretty much determined the entire war. That was the first conflict in human history where different countries could take what he called a punch they could take a punch get back up and go back out and do it again until that point most countries didn't have enough resources if they lost a battle to raise a whole nother army and go back out for more but during that conflict they did and so as a result war got a lot longer it was the first time that that happened in human history in the ancient world entire wars were instead won or lost in just a day what all that means then is that you are, if you were a citizen of one of those ancient civilizations, some ancient city or ancient kingdom, and your country went to war, your entire life could change just like that. One day was all it took. You might have woken up a Seleucid that morning, but all of a sudden you're going to bed as a Roman. Some battle took place somewhere, and now all of a sudden you're a different nationality, living as part of a different kingdom and ruled by a different king. And here's the thing that all might happen and you might not have any idea you might not know that there had been this battle that there had been this war in fact you might not have even known that your country was in a conflict at all after all there were no smartphones back then right there were no news cameras with live updates of the battle no twitter feeds right and so for most of history the average person the average citizen of some city some king They wouldn't know that their kingdom was involved in some conflict. They wouldn't know how that conflict turned out, and they wouldn't have known what it meant for their lives. Until, that is, the messenger showed up. The angelos in the original Greek. Okay, you see, once the battle was done and the winning side had emerged victorious, what they would do is they would send out messengers, runners, to go to all the cities and towns in the kingdom and tell them what had happened. In fact, this is actually where we get the distance for a marathon. 26.2 miles. Because after the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, when the Greeks defeated the Persians, the Greeks sent a runner, a soldier named Pheidippides, to run to Athens with the news that they had been victorious. Okay? Legend has it that he had got there, said, we've won, and then collapsed and died. So that's why a lot of people say if you run a marathon, start like Pheidippides, finish like someone else. Okay? We even see an example of this in 2 Samuel 18. There's a young man in that chapter who begs the commander of Israel's army to let him run to King David with the news of what happened to his son Absalom. And so that runner, that angelos, that messenger would have showed up in the towns and cities of that kingdom, of the kingdoms that were involved and he would have announced to them the Galeon, the good news, the battlefield report. He'd show up in the town square and say, I have good news for you. The battle has been won. Let me tell you about your king. And then they would announce the good news of who had won the battle. That's how that word, angelos, was originally used before it became a Christian term. It was a news update, a battlefield report, the good news of who had won the war. And yet, just like with Captain Hadley's news about his inheritance, that good news, that Galeon, that gospel... Might have had another side to it, right? Because if your king won, then no big deal. Your life would stay the same. It would just be back to life as usual for you. But if the other side won, your whole life could change in a moment. could look entirely different. The rules, regulations, laws, taxes you lived according to, even your religion could change. You see, news like that, even good news changes us. It affects us. Sometimes it costs us something. It certainly cost Mary. We have a tendency, I think, to imagine this scene here in Luke chapter 1 um, in a bit of a sanitized way, I'd say. After all, this passage is one we've probably heard before, right? Most likely around Christmas time some year. And it's easy to think, oh, how nice. You know, there was Mary, sitting in her room, probably doing her devotions or something, right? And then this angel, Gabriel, shows up, and he's warm and smiling and gracious, and he gives Mary the wonderful news that she's going to become pregnant and that her child will be the Messiah. And it's beautiful how Mary just humbly and obediently responds, may your word to me be fulfilled. What a wonderful story. The only problem is that this actually probably wasn't that wonderful of a story for Mary, at least not at the start. This Galeon, this gospel, doesn't come to her as good news, at least not yet. She doesn't receive this angelos, this messenger, with the kind of humble, smiling gladness we imagine. Instead, she receives him in the news that he brings to her with fear and trembling. Why? Why? In order to understand that, I think it's helpful for us to take a a closer look at this text this morning, to spend some time actually in Mary's shoes and look at this encounter with Gabriel through her eyes. I think doing so will help us understand a bit better what's going on here, what kind of gospel or good news Luke wants us to hear as he tells this gospel story, and what it means not only for people like Mary back then, but still for us as Christian believers today. And so let's start with Mary's age. Uh, To be honest, Mary is probably quite a bit younger here than we tend to imagine her. Uh, That's because in that time and culture, girls were usually engaged between the ages of 10 to 12 years old. They were usually married then uh, between the ages of 12 to 14. So when, when Luke says that Mary was pledged to be married, it doesn't mean that she was in her late teens or early 20s the way that we might think of a young engaged woman today. Instead, it means that she was probably only 12 or 13 years old. Second, to be pledged or betrothed or engaged to be married meant something different back then than it does today. That's because to be engaged today means that you're probably going to get married, right? But there's still a bit of wiggle room. I mean, we don't hear about it often, um, but every once in a while you'll hear of someone getting cold feet and calling off a wedding. For one reason or another, they break off their engagement and end the relationship. But that kind of wiggle room did not exist back then in Mary's day. Uh, It certainly didn't exist for the woman in a relationship. And that's because once you were engaged for all intents and purposes, you were already, according to the legal process at the time, married. Uh, As part of the betrothal process, there was actually a legal transaction that took place where the groom would go to the bride's father and pay him a sum of money. It was known as the bride's price. And in return, her father would give the groom a legal document called a deed of betrothal, promising that bride to that groom. Now the bride would continue to stay at her father's house until the actual wedding took place, but for all intents and purposes in the eyes of the law, the bride and groom were more or less already married. In fact, if the groom decided that for some reason he did want to break off the engagement, he actually had to go to the magistrates and draw up a full document of divorce in order to call off the engagement with his fiancée. It'd be kind of like today if when couples uh, got engaged, the first thing that they did was actually went to the courthouse and got a civil marriage certificate before then later getting married in the church. That's kind of what it was like. There was this legal aspect that predated the wedding ceremony itself. And so Mary isn't just engaged to Joseph the way we might think of today. Instead, she's already more or less locked into this marriage with him. And yet, despite that, here's this angel showing up and telling her that she's going to become pregnant before she's officially married. And that her fiancé, Joseph, is not going to be involved in the process. I'll suffice it to say that that would have been a pretty big deal in that time and culture. And that's because given how legally binding her engagement would have been, Mary being pregnant before her wedding would have been seen as an act of adultery. And adultery, again, especially for women, was a capital offense. You could get killed for committing adultery. We actually see this in John chapter 8, right? The Pharisees bring a woman accused of adultery to Jesus and they say, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. The law tells us to stone such women. What do you say? And then they all pick up rocks and get ready. Now Jesus diffuses the situation by responding, let the one who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. But the point is clear. Adultery is a big deal. And so the fact that Mary was going to be pregnant before her wedding without Joseph's involvement put her in grave, grave danger. Fourth and finally, we tend to think of angels today as nice, friendly cre- creatures who show, up, uh, who, who show up in situations in the Bible, and everyone is probably familiar with them, Right? But that's probably not the case. First, the Bible doesn't actually talk about angels all that much. In the grand scope of Scripture, their appearances are sort of few and far between. It seems like they're around all the time to us because they tend to show up at really important key moments in Scripture. But if you think about the, the timeline, the number of years that the story of Scripture covers, their appear- appearances are really pretty few and far between. They don't show up that often. I think we have this idea that people in the Bible were running into angels all the time, right? But that's not really the case. I think it's more likely that people in the Bible encountered angels with about the same frequency that we do today. Like most of us, the average person in the ancient world, probably didn't encounter an angel during their lifetime. It was only a special few who did. And so because of that, we don't actually know that much about angels. Even when scripture does mention them, it doesn't really go into much detail. They're sort of mysterious creatures, And it seems they were mysterious even to the people they appeared to. After all, almost every time angels show up in scripture, the text tells us two things. First, it tells us that the people they appeared to were troubled or confused or scared. And then second, it tells us that one of the first things the angels say to them is, Don't be afraid. And so if you put that all together, it makes a bit more sense why Mary is taken aback here, right? I mean, here's this 12 or 13-year-old girl locked into a marriage contract, hearing from a mysterious, awe-inspiring, terrifying messenger of God that she's going to become pregnant out of wedlock in a culture that might kill her for it. This angel, this angelos, that's where we get the word angel from, He shows up with this news, good news, but it's not news without a cost. Instead, it's news that does something to Mary. It's news that demands something of her. It's news that will change her. And the truth is that news ought to change us. You know, I think we tend to read the story of our own lives the way we read Mary's sometimes. Like I said, we sort of sanitize Mary's encounter with the angel here. Intentionally or not, we edit out the punch, the sting, the cost of this news to Mary, and instead we make it just another nice story in Scripture. And I think sometimes we do that same thing in our own lives, too. The gospel should affect us. It should change us. It should cost us things. One of my friends has a habit of saying that the word Christian is a noun, not an adjective. What he means by that is that we can't just tack on our Christian identity to other aspects of who we already are. I'm a Christian Republican. I'm a Christian Democrat. I'm a Christian woman. I'm a Christian man. I'm a Christian American. I'm a Christian fill in the blank. He says when we do that, we're making that other aspect of our identity most important. And then we're simply tacking our faith onto it. We're simply modifying that other more important part of who we are with our Christianity. The problem with that, though, is that it minimizes the kind of change that the gospel ought to have on us. It neuters it. It diminishes the demand, the effect, the cost the gospel makes in our lives. You see, as Christians, our faith shouldn't just be part of our identity. It should be the main part of our identity. It shouldn't just describe some aspects of who we are. It should define who we are. You see, to become a Christian is to experience a top-to-bottom, 360-degree, all-of-life transformation. There's no part of us that our faith doesn't touch or affect. No part. It's all wrapped up in the good news of the gospel and transformed. In fact, that's actually what we saw just a little bit ago with Jared's profession this morning. I don't know if he fully realizes this, probably, because like Nate said, he's a pretty smart guy. We had long, long theological conversations during the class. But that's actually part of what he was saying when he got up front and professed his faith this morning. In fact, as we all reaffirmed our profession this morning afterwards, that's what we were saying too. To profess our faith is to say that that's the most important part of who we are. That everything else about us is wrapped up in it. And that being a Christian is what defines us over and above everything else. In other words, the gospel, the euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ changes us totally and completely. That's what Luke wants us to hear right away right at the start of his gospel, this account of Jesus' life, this record of his ministry and what it means, Luke wants us to grasp the life-changing, person-altering, costly good news of what the gospel is all about. Sometimes I think we forget that. We read about Mary in this text and we turn her encounter with Gabriel into another nice Bible story, absent the weight, absent the significance, the fear that this news would have affected on her. And we do the same thing with ourselves. We want to be Christians, and yet we still want to live the way that we're used to. We still want to act the way we've always acted. Talk the way we've always talked. Think the thoughts that we've always thought. And stay the way we've always been. Like Mary, the gospel scares us. It scares us because it might change us. It might demand something of us. It might cost us. And so we turn it into an adjective that we can tack on the other areas of our lives so that it can't affect us as deeply as it should. We sanitize and minimize it and downplay just how transformative, just how powerful, just how life-changing the gospel really should be. We take the good news of Jesus Christ and we turn it into nice news so we don't have to deal with the demands it makes on us. And so... That's the case. As with Mary, the word of God comes to us and one of the first things it says is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's one of the first lines of the gospel message. That's one of the first lines of this news. That's one of the first lines of the Eungaleon that we need to hear. Do not be afraid. Why? Why should we not be afraid of this gospel news? Well, I'm sure by now you can see some of the connections, right? I'm sure you can figure out why it was that the early Christians took this obscure Greek term for a battlefield report and appropriated it for their purposes, right? You see, a king was born. That's part of Gabriel's announcement to Mary in this text. This child, the son that she will have, he will be a king. And this king will fight a battle. He will go out into the wilderness and stand face to face with the one who wrongfully claims to be king of this world. He will do battle against him, Satan, and all the forces of sin and death that accompany him. And though it will look as though this king will lose, though it will look as though Satan will triumph and put him in the grave, though it will look as though the battle is over, this king will arise. He will defeat the forces of Satan and sin and death. And he will establish his rule and reign over all things. And that, indeed, is what happened. We just celebrated it again a week ago. That's the news, the evangelion, the gospel that has come to us. It's not news that leaves us the same. It changes us. It transforms us. It costs us. But it also comforts us, calms us, and puts our fears to rest. Do not be afraid. That's where this story, this gospel, this good news of Jesus starts. Do not be afraid. Because of him, we don't have to be. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The truth is, you demand everything of us. Our lives don't stay the same. How could they? Experiencing a holy God such as yourself, being called into relationship with you, being called to be your people, our lives don't stay the same. They couldn't possibly. And yet, Lord, along with the chains, the transformation, the costly calling that you place on us, you also give us immeasurable grace, more than we could ever ask or imagine. You fill our lives with blessing. And you love and care for us in ways that we can't even comprehend. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are our king. Thank you for that good news of the gospel that has come to us and told us that you have won and that you rule this world. It's in the name of our king, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.